The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. And they brought him to the place called Gotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, and he cannot save himself? Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land, until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered, a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There was also women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salami. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him And there was also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you are in kindergarten through fifth and you would like to go to children's church, please join the volunteers by the kids' zone sign in the back. If it's your child's first time, please go with them so we can get them checked in. It's our second to last sermon in Mark. Come to the coup de croix. If you ask any educated person in the world... What do Christians believe? Any educated person in the world. Different cultures, different countries, different religions. What does a Christian believe? They will tell you, Christians believe that Jesus died on the cross for their sin. Jesus died on the cross for their sin. So if it's so easy to know what it means to be a Christian, that Jesus died on the cross for our sin... Why is it so wildly interpreted, so variously interpreted? I think it's because cognitively you understand what it means to say, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sin. But there is an element in which if I were to ask you, why did he do that? We've been working all the way through Mark to this moment in time. Why did Jesus die on the cross for your sin? I mean, Paul says, I've decided to know nothing but two things, Christ and Him crucified. It's the singular testimony of the Bible, Christ and Him crucified. That's what you have to know to be a Christian. 
You know the content. The question is, do you know the why? Why did he die for you? It matters a lot. It'll shape how you live if you know the why of why he died for you. The truth of it is, we think, or at least act like, Jesus died to make me feel bad about my sins. Jesus died for me so that I would be a better person. Or Jesus died for me that I would be less of a bad person. But why did Jesus die for me? I don't know. I'll tell you what, though, it makes me really ashamed of myself. It makes really hate my behavior. It makes me really feel like a mess all the time. And there's an element in which each one of us, we think Jesus died somewhat to make us feel bad. And I'm here this morning to tell you that if we read through the crucifixion narrative, and within the backdrop, you think the point of it is to make you feel guilty, you'll misunderstand the whole story. He didn't die to make you feel guilty. Why did he die? Because he loves you. And for what purpose did he die? To set you free. Galatians 5 says it this way. It is for freedom's sake that Christ has set us free. It is for freedom's sake that Christ has set us free. So the question to you is, what am I going to do with Jesus? That's what Pilate experienced. Back and forth about Barabbas. You want Jesus, you want Barabbas. What am I going to do with this guy? What am I going to do with Jesus? Alistair Begg says it's really the center question of all of the Bible. For you who don't trust in Christ, you have to ask yourself, what am I going to do about this Jesus? Call him a good teacher, call him a moral man. You have to give a verdict to Jesus. Alistair Begg said, in abstention, in the whole who is Jesus debate, I abstain from that debate. I don't think he's a savior of sinners, and I don't think he's a monster. I abstain from that debate. Alistair Begg says that abstention in the vote about who Jesus is is a no vote for Jesus. If you're here today and don't trust in him, you have to decide, what am I going to do about Jesus? And if you're here today and you do trust in Christ, what is it doing for you? Are you walking around with your eyes aimed at your shoes, limping from shame all the time? Jesus didn't die so that you would limp around the rest of your life ashamed. He died to set you free. Well, let's pray and ask God to bless our study of His Word this morning. Lord, would you have mercy on me, a sinner? Father, pour out your Spirit on us. Rush into this room powerfully. There are those in this room that do not know your Son, Jesus, and by your Holy Spirit, would you awaken them this morning? And there are those in this room who do follow Jesus, who do trust in Jesus, but think Jesus is about out to make them feel bad about who they are. And I pray that you'd wake them up too. We ask for your richest blessings on us this morning. Jesus, we need you. 
It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. When Aaron and I and Knox and Cormac had concluded our time in Houston, we kind of had the last couple of weeks to spend time going out and celebrating with friends, kind of grieving who we were leaving behind and saying goodbye to our people that were closest to us. And one of our closest couple of friends said, we want a night where we get to take you out to the nicest restaurant in Houston and we are going to treat you. We don't, we, we don't want you to hold back at all. We want you to throw down and enjoy yourselves. This is our celebration and our going away present for you. And it's really nice when someone says that at the beginning of a meal, that they're going to cover it because you're not sitting there like, should I get the salad and get a water on the side? You know right at the beginning, no salad. I'm getting the largest steak they have on the menu and the most expensive bottle of wine. Even the appetizer was $80, just the appetizer. It was like this tier, three-tier thing where they had lobster on the bottom and then shrimp in the middle and more seafood on the top. And that was just to get us going. We had fun and we laughed and we played. And then finally the bill came. The husband quickly took the check, the book, dropped his credit card in it, closed it, put it down, and he excused himself to go to the restroom. The girls were still talking and I saw the check standing over there by itself. Curiosity got the best of me. I wanted to know what kind of damage we just did. And so I peered over when no one was looking and it opened up the check and apparently they had given him a mortgage invoice. <laughs> it was the largest bill I had ever seen at a restaurant in my life. And immediately I felt terrible. We didn't need to go that big. I feel so bad, so guilty of the gift. You can picture that moment. Something does some, someone does something for you that's so nice and it makes you feel bad. We need a corrective emotional experience. Here's what I mean. If you tell a man who's trying to be a good man, He's a husband, sometimes he's grumpy, but he's trying, or a father, sometimes he's irritable, but he's really trying, he's trying to get, get his family in church, he's trying to lead his family well, he's trying to build something with his life, and you look him in the eye and say, hey man, you're a good man. What will that husband's reaction be? His mind will fill with all of the moments, all of the cracks, all of the lack, all of the things that he's not still. You are trying to offer him some light, some encouragement, something good. And all it did was expose in him all the things that he's not. It's the same way if you're talking to a woman and let's say she struggles with insecurities and you tell her something about her that's beautiful, oftentimes she will not be honored. I mean, she may say thank you, but her mind will not be filled with the one thing you noticed about her that's good. Her mind will be filled with all of the things about her she still thinks is bad. Do you see it? Someone wants to bless me with an outlandishly lavish Houston dinner and all I can do is feel bad because I didn't contribute. We need a corrective emotional experience. We are so unused to grace, we don't even know what it looks like when it shows up. That's what's going on here. If you believe this story happened because the God of the universe loves you 
And he refused to be without you. And he wanted you for his own. He loved you so much. He came for you. And even at that, his motive was love and his intention so that you'd be set free. So that you would walk audaciously through life saying, the king of the universe is fond of me. And yes, I make mistakes here and there, but he loves me. He's blessing me. He's using me. The king of the universe is fond of me. If you believed that, it would change everything about the way that you live. But if you're like me, you think the king died for me, not out of love, but out of obligation. And his intention for me was to try and get a little better all the time, try and pay it back. But make sure I'm feeling how bad I am while I'm doing it. We need a corrective emotional experience. The cross is like this for most of us. When we think of the cross, we're prone to feel bad, guilty, ashamed. And when we feel the, see the cross, we're focused on what we now have to do. Instead of feeling loved and free and able to celebrate what he has done. It's not the only, it's not the only symbol we have like this in the Bible. If you remember way back to Noah in the ark, God is going to destroy all of the wickedness. The people have become so bad that God feels sorry that he created them. It's a verse in the Bible. And he wants to destroy all the wickedness so that there's a new pathway forward for human beings. And he rescues Noah and Noah's family and all of these creatures and he puts them on the boat and rains come and go. And finally, after all of the things on earth are destroyed, Noah and his family can finally get off the boat. God puts what? a rainbow in the sky. And that sign is to point to the fact that now people can know when it rains, they don't have to be afraid that God is never going to cover the whole earth with water again. A promise that that kind of condemnation is over from water. And when we see that, we say, oh yeah, it's raining and it's scary, but look at the rainbow. That sign means the condemnation through water is over. That's what the cross is supposed to be for us. When we're struggling and when we're sad and when we're sinning, we remember the cross and go, oh yeah, I may feel ashamed, I may feel alone, but look, the cross says that my sin and shame has already and forever been dealt with in the person of Jesus, and so I'm going to live freely out of that reality. The sign is supposed to set you free. What happens, though, is we tend to make two errors. We either minimize our sin, and so the cross seems really small. That's some of our problem. We say, I mean, I'm, I make mistakes. I don't know if I'm bad enough for Jesus to have to die for me. And so we have such a small view of our mistakes and a small view of our sin, and so someone to come and save us from it, it just doesn't mean that much. It's like, yeah, I mean, I, I guess... It's like he's kind of doing you a favor, but it doesn't really mean that much. So you can have a small view of your sin, which will drive a small view of the cross. Or for some of us, it feels more modest, more humble, but we have a huge view of our sin. It's as if we're saying we are so messed up and so broken and so sinful and so ashamed. I don't know if God could ever forgive me from this sign of the cross. And it feels humble to say that. But what it's actually saying is that God from all time who 
the Trinity set out this plan of salvation that God would come nearer and nearer to his people. And despite all of their sin, people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation, they would all come and in all of history would converge on this moment at the cross. And that Jesus would deal with the wretchedness, the commandment breakers, the sinners, all here at this cross. And that he would keep his word because of his faithfulness. And that he will see us through until glory. And it's seeing all of the power of the cross and saying, yeah, but this one night I did this one thing. As if this one thing we could do could undermine the power and the majesty and the glory of all that has been done in the cross. See, the other mistake you can make is having such a big view of your sin that you think that the cross can't possibly keep up with your sin. And you've made the cross small too. The truth of this is that the cross is the relentless, rugged, colossal power of God for people. It stands as a testimony like the rainbow that says, you in Christ will never be condemned again. You in Christ will never be defined by your sin and your commandment breaking ever again. It doesn't exist to make you feel bad or make you feel shamed. It exists to set you free. You see, we all struggle to trust that we're really loved, but because of what Christ has done, we must trust his love for us. We need a corrective emotional experience. Well, let's walk through some of the gory details here in the text. Glance with me in verses 21 and 22. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. I want you to see this. At the beginning of the Gospels, at least in Luke, we see that when Jesus arrives in Bethlehem, there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of angels to glorify God in heaven. In other words, Jesus shows up in Bethlehem and heaven throws a party on earth. That there's shepherds and there's wise men, there's people closing in on Jesus. And you see the crowds in Jesus' life get bigger and bigger. The time he feeds 15,000, the time he feeds 20,000. And then when he marches into Jerusalem, there are crowds as far as the eye can see, much bigger than our little felt boards can imagine, as far as the eye can see, and they're yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna to, the one, to, the, to David's greater son. Hosanna, come in the, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And then as the week goes on, then there's going to be 11. And then there's going to be one left. And then Peter will say, I tell you, I never knew the man. What you're supposed to see and appreciate about the fact that Simon of Cyrene, this nobody, is mentioned here, is that no one is left to carry his cross. Jesus went to set you free out of love for you, and he went alone. It's supposed to encourage you. 
It's supposed to know as hard and as dark as the journey was from him. He didn't look back. He didn't give up. He marched on, even when he had to march on alone. And it's also supposed to show you this. Doesn't it seem random, the names they're throwing at you? And it's last, last minute details. He's been telling the story about Jesus of Nazareth and, and Peter. And this group of people, and all of a sudden he's like, and Simon of Cyrene, well, you know, that's Rufus and Alexander's dad. And you're like, what? Who's Rufus? Why are we talking about Alexander in Mark 15? The point that you're supposed to pick up on the fact that we'll see Rufus mentioned later in the text, later in Scripture. John Mark wants his readers who would have known this, who would have known who Simon of Cyrene was, who would have known who Alexander and who Rufus was. And John Mark hits the pause button to his audience and goes, guys, you remember who this is? This is Rufus's dad. And the reason that I stopped to tell you that is because, one, it's verifiable in the Gospels that you, you see these are real people with real stories and real dads. But also, it's supposed to get you this sense of when Rufus thinks about this moment, when Rufus hears this story told, Rufus gets to say, this is the moment. This is the moment that everything changed for me when my dad gets pulled in on this horror of horrors of errands. That Jesus is so weak and so battered that he can't carry his own cross. That my dad got pulled into that mess. And I watched that man die. We don't know all of the details about Rufus and Alexander otherwise, other than they appear in the New Testament church. But what it's supposed to say to you is even in these dark little moments of your story where you think there's no way that can be redeemed. Dad having to carry that cross. There's no way that could be redeemed. My mistakes, my dropping the ball, my messing up, there's no way that can be redeemed. God is still moving in your story. Just ask Rufus. And there's this scene too that, I, that always comes to mind when, when I preach through this. There's a scene in the Passion. The Passion where the storytelling of Jesus' death and if you've seen it, it's gruesome. It's hard to watch the whole thing. But there's this scene where they've just flogged Jesus and you see how bloody and battered he is and they've spit on him and they've humiliated him and you're sort of tearing up, can't look away. And Jesus is marching with his cross and he's stumbling with his cross. And his mom, Mary, is wandering through the city trying to get close enough so that Jesus will see her. Trying to get close enough so that Jesus will understand, son, you're not alone. And finally, as Jesus kind of stumbles, he's overwhelmed by the weight of the cross. He's overwhelmed by being flogged, and he falls flat on his face. And his mom has found a side street, and she comes up right next to him. And she's looking, and she's, she has terror in her eyes from what is happening to her son. And Jesus looks up at her and says, See, Mama, I am making all things new. That little narr narrative is not in the Bible explicitly, it's an apocryph apocryphal tale. But it certainly says something that is very true, is that Jesus went there on purpose to make all things new, not to make his mama feel bad. And they crucify him. Look with me in these verses, 23 to 32. After Simon of Cyrene and Alexander and Rufus. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means a place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide which each should take. 
And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, why don't you save, your, excuse me, save yourself and come down from the cross? So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross. We may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. There's several details I want you to see in here. First, that there's no anesthetic. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it. That's like them saying, you, wanna, you want us to take the edge of this thing off, right? You want us to numb you up a bit, right? And he doesn't take it so that he can take all of the wrath of God without anesthesia for you and for me. And they're casting lots on his clothes. That's how humiliating it's gone. He's now naked, stripped down, vulnerable, and they're playing poker, essentially, casting lots at that time, for who gets to take home and sell his clothes. And there's this charge on the sign. It says, here's Jesus, the king of the Jews, which of course is ironic because they're saying it to mock him as if, look, the king of the Jews, yeah, except he's crucified and now soon will be dead. And John Mark and the other gospel writers use it ironically saying, look, the king of the Jews, the king of all people, the king of all time. And he's mocked. They're bullying him. In my house, we talk a lot about, I've got middle schoolers and teenagers. We talk a lot about how I don't want them to be bullies, even though I have bullied people before. We want them to be able to stand up for themselves, not bully others, and stand up for other people. Because we all know a bully is a sad thing. And yet Jesus here is being bullied and tortured and ultimately abandoned. He's lonely and he's thirsty and he's shamed and he's abandoned. And I tell you all that to say he obeys anyway. He obeys anyway. When is it hardest for you and I to obey God? When someone is doing something wrong against us. We've been wronged, so we think, you know what? We've been wronged, so it makes sense, or it's fair, or it's fine, or at least it's reasonable that I do some wronging too. And instead of that, when Jesus is wronged, he obeys. Why is it so important that Jesus obeyed and saw it through right to the end? Because he knew you and I wouldn't obey. In light of Jesus' perfect obedience, there is no obedience left for you to do to secure your perfect standing with God. I did not misspeak. Let me say it to you again. In light of Jesus' perfect obedience, there is no obedience left for you to do to secure your perfect standing with God. We tend to think that God saved us up until yesterday. And now we've started a run-up new set of charges. And we've only got enough grace to cover us for yesterday. And that's why that 
obedience of Jesus matters so much is that it doesn't just stop at yesterday. It's his full life's obedience is traded for yours. There is no obedience left for you to do to secure your relationship standing with God in light of Jesus' perfect obedience. And then the darkness. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Growing up, I've always understood darkness in this story. I don't know if some of you are like me. Haven't you thought that the darkness in this story is that as they're putting Jesus to death, the Father is so upset with the Jewish elite. He is so upset with the disciples who have turned and fled into the dark. He is so upset with Rome that while they're crucifying his son, you see the anger of God sort of manifesting itself on all of these people who are killing his son. Is that how you thought? That's how I've thought about it. Until I read Keller. Of course it was Keller. He says, darkness during the day in the Bible signals judgment of God's displeasure. And he points back to Exodus 10. When Pharaoh wouldn't let God's people go, a darkness came over the land, which was a condemnation on Pharaoh. And here a darkness comes over the land, and it's a condemnation on his son, Jesus. It doesn't go all dark because he's mad at Rome. It doesn't go all dark because he's mad at the Jewish elite. It goes all dark because he is pouring out the wrath of God on his son. And there's to be no light. He's to take all of the wrath. That's how we know what leads to the, from the darkness is the cry. Look with me in verse 33 through 37. And there was the sixth hour had come. Remember, it's only noon. It shouldn't be darkness all over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You've seen him can't even carry his cross. You've seen he's, they've crucified him. You've seen the darkness, the wrath of God poured out, and now you see the cry. The English Puritan said, Jesus was never more obedient, never pleased the Father more than when, we were, than when he uttered these words on the cross. This is where Jesus feels the full weight of the forsakenness of Christ. That part of the wrath that he would have to suffer is that he would be forsaken by the Father. Someone who he has for eternity past had a perfect relationship with. And here, here, the Father turns his back on his Son so that he can turn his face towards you. If you see it, it's just so sad. Mark, the crowd just keeps getting smaller. Yes, the disciples leave. Yes, now Peter leaves. Oh, oh, and now the Father leaves. In his forsakenness, he brings you into the fellowship of God. That means he gives up his chair at the feast with the Trinity and says, here, you come sit in my spot. You are now promoted into my spot. That's the audacity of the gospel, is that God loves you to the same degree that he loves Jesus. And that doesn't mean Jesus is demoted down into your position. 
That doesn't mean that, oh, he must not have liked Jesus that much. That means he loves you so much that he promotes you into Jesus' place. And most of you are sitting there like, eh, nah, not that much. I'll grant you, Jared, he loves me. I'll grant you that he died for me. But he loves me like he loves Jesus? Yes. Otherwise, why make the trade? Otherwise, why make the trade? That's not just a part of the gospel. That's the message of the gospel. That he who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all. I won't even spare my son. That's how much I love him. That's what he's saying to you. So when you doubt his love for you, when you doubt his compassion for you, when you're sinning or when you're suffering or when you're sad, I want you to think of this moment. The father and son, the, fa the son is forsaken here so that the father can turn his face to you. And then later the father's going to decide, oh, I know we went through all of that, but this one sin they're doing really bothers me. So I'm going to rethink my whole relationship with this Christian. It's an insult to the work of Christ. It would make it null and void for the Father to do all of this for you, to, to require all of this for Jesus, and then to cheapen it by saying it can be easily abated. It can be easily messed with. It can be easily taken away. When you doubt His love for you because of your current circumstances, it depreciates the, it makes it null and void the love of Jesus. Not in reality, but in your head. Jesus didn't die on the cross to make you feel bad. Jesus died on the cross for you because he loved you and to set you free. So the next time you're doubting his love, I want you to frame it like this, okay? I want you to play this game in your head. You think he would let his son hang bloody and alone on a cross for someone he's indifferent towards? You think he would hang bloody and alone on a cross for someone he's making up his mind about? You think he would blame, excuse me, let his son hang bloody and alone on a cross for someone he's passively, aggressively postured towards? You don't let your son hang on the cross for someone you're annoyed by. You let your son hang on a cross only, only if it's for someone you can't stand to be, about, be without. Only it's because you let your son hang because you must rescue the person that you love no matter the cost. 20 years ago, I played soccer at Covenant College and there was this practice that they do. I don't know if they still do, but however many minutes late you are to practice, the team has to run an uphill sprint. Now, this is for those of you who know Covenant College, this is the hill that leads up to where the baseball fields are. And down at the bottom the team would start, and the person who was late couldn't do the running. So the rest of the 25 would start at the bottom and sprint up the hill, and you would be standing at the top, and they would turn around and sprint back down the hill, and you would wait, and they would do six more of those. Imagine the eyes of the guys who are making it to the top of the hill as they're standing there looking at you saying, I'm paying your price. Tonight, we're going to kill you. <laughs> I'm paying your price, and I don't like it. And friends, that's what we think Jesus did. That he's hanging there, and he's paying our price, and he's glaring down at us saying, I'm your, I'll pay your price, but you're going to pay for this. 
But that's not what Jesus does. He stands and says, it is finished. Other gospel writers say that Jesus says, Father, forgive them. So not angry, petulant eyes, but eyes of compassion and love, even into the darkest hours, even into the worst moments, not standing at you like, yeah, I'm paying your price, but you're going to get it, but I'm paying your price, and I'm going to give you my reward. That's the attitude that I envision Jesus has. I died because I love you. I died to set you free. I didn't die to make you feel bad. Tom Wright memorably recasts the footsteps photo. Have you ever seen the footsteps thing? It's a sweet Christian thing that some people hang up in their house, and I'm not here to make fun of it. I find it very powerfully, very powerful. You'll see it. It's, it's sort of normally a picture of someone or a picture of an empty beach, and alongside the beach, you'll see footprints. And the person who's talking is basically on a walk with God, reviewing the moments of their life, the history, the reminders, the, the memories of their life, and they're noticing that there were two footprints all along throughout their life. And they're appreciating the fact that when God walked with them, God was present with them. But then the person is concerned. They see that in the moments of the memories where things were hardest in their life, there was one set of footprints. And the person just can't help themselves but to ask God and say, God, I noticed that you've been with me through the memories, through the footprints of my life. But when when things were the hardest, when things were the darkest, there was only one set of footprints. And God says to them, my friend, because there was only one set of footprints, when things were the darkest, it was then that I carried you. And it's a sweet reminder that God carries us in the dark moments of our lives. But I want to tell you, as Tom Wright says, that's not what Jesus got. Jesus, when reviewing the events of his life with the Father, would look something like this. Father, I see that you walked with me in my ministry. You walked with me throughout so many times. But I see here at this darkest hour, at this moment where things were all fall apart and all walked away, there was only one set of footprints, God. And God says, oh yes, son, that is when I abandoned you. That is when I forsook you. That's when I turned my back on you so that I could turn my face to them. His aloneness is so haunting here unless you realize what it won him, and that's you. His aloneness won him never having to turn his back on you. He was forsaken so that you will never be forsaken. And then he dies. He dies. Sixteen chapters of a, man, about a story about a man who dies. He dies and he breathes his last. But you see, it's not the story we were expecting. If you've ever seen the movie Sixth Sense, I'm, if you haven't, I'm going to ruin it for you. The Sixth Sense is a story about this boy who can see ghosts. And he's working with this, this man to help him figure out why he sees these ghosts. In the closing moments of the movie, you realize that this man has been helping him. The reason that 
he's been doing all of these things is he's one of the ghosts Haley Joel Osment sees. You realize Bruce Willis has been dead the whole time. And now you think, I haven't understood one moment of this entire movie because all of it is wrapped up in this moment. And if you could ever talk yourself into seeing it a second time, you would watch it entirely different because this one moment changed the entire narrative of the story. The story you thought you were watching is somehow better than ever before, and that's this moment. From the outset, it looks like a loss. That's why you feel guilty. That's why you feel shamed. It looks like a loss. But I want you to see this, and it's really important that you do. Jesus inaugurates his kingdom, not in spite of loss, but through it. This is like a diamond. You turn, and every angle is just more beautiful than the next. Think about the Garden of Eden, shame and death, all because of a tree. And Satan hits Jesus, shame and death, all because of a tree. And here in, the, here in Golgotha, shame and death because of a tree. And Jesus hits Satan back. You see the genius, the beauty, the majesty. Death is supposed to be the very thing to ruin God's perfect plan. And instead, Jesus uses death to accomplish God's plan. Death was supposed to bring more death. And now, beautifully and ironically, death brings life. Satan introduces death into the world thinking he's initiating the beginning of the end. And Jesus uses the death to initiate the beginning of the beginning. It's like Tolkien said, everything sad is going to come untrue. And if he can transform the most colossal, unjust, tragic death, can't he transform your deaths too? Your losses too, which are real. And I don't make light of them. But if he can take the worst thing that's ever happened and turn it into the great and most glorious thing ever to be expected, could he not do so with our smaller tragedies and our smaller losses? And this curtain, I'll be brief here, this curtain, 60 or 80 feet wide, depending on which curtain it was, excuse me, high, depending on which curtain it was, it's four inches thick. It's ripped not from the bottom, where a couple of people, you think a couple of strong people could have divided up and sort of played tug of war until it began to rip from the bottom all the way to the top. No, it's ripped from the top to the bottom. On one day of atonement, one time per year, he represented the chosen people before Yahweh, the most holy place. The, the priest would go in and sprinkle the blood of a bull, sprinkling the blood of the goat on the mercy seat. And without doing this, God could not live in a relationship with his people. And God rips the thing in half. He says, there is no more distance between you and me anymore. God didn't save you just up until yesterday. All of your sin poured out on Jesus. It took all of the wrath of God to make your sin null and void. And then all of Jesus' perfect record put on you so that when God sees you, He sees His Son whom He loves. What are the things that you still think hang between you and God? Last two things and we'll close. The centurion. It's a non-Jew. It's a non-disciple. It's just marked helping us image where the story is going. That the king of the Jews has really come for all peoples. Everywhere. Every tribe and nation. Every tongue. 
not just the king of the Jews, but it's, it's a Roman of all people that get to say, surely this man was the son of God. And then lastly, for you ladies, verse 40. There are also women looking on from a distance among who were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger and of Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Don't ever, don't ever believe the ridiculous narrative that Jesus is more interested in the rescue and relationship with men than he is of women. At the crucifixion, there's nobody left standing there but ladies. In three days' time, at the resurrection, there'll be no one there to realize it but ladies. Jesus values and loves and validates the ministry of women. So in summary, Jesus did not die, friends, to make you feel bad. He did not die to get lay a guilt trip on you. He died for you because he loves you. He died for you to set you free. When Knox was little, I was reading him a Bible story explaining to him in this moment, this very moment, this is when Jesus destroyed sin. And I'm getting emotional as I'm telling him about it, that this is the moment right here in Golgotha. This is the moment that he destroyed sin. And I think I'm really getting him. I think I'm really turning things around for him. And he looks up at me with tears in his eyes. And he says, but Jesus didn't destroy my sin, Daddy. I'm still sinning ongoingly. I get scared, Dad, because he destroyed sin. You said he destroyed sin back there, but I still see sin in my heart. And he was sad. And I said, Knox, that's the beauty of it, is that the sin that we're still getting to has already been paid for on the cross. I get it too, Knox. I feel that way. That sin, he might have dealt with some people's sin, but not mine. Not this dirty mess. And me, like Knox, needs to be reminded that he didn't just save you up until yesterday. The hymn writer says this, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Jesus hangs there and dies and destroys the penalty of sin and the power of sin, not that so you would feel bad, but so that you know you are loved and friends, so that you know you are free. Let's live like it. Let's pray. Father, with your Holy Spirit, would you rush into this room and any heart that needs to find a home in Christ, would you find them and bring them home even now? And Father, for any heart who just needs to be reminded of who they are and who you are and who your son Jesus is, would you remind them now and lift their spirits. It's in Jesus' name and for His sake we pray. Amen.
It's in Jesus' name and for his sake we pray. Amen.